Well, thank you all for coming. It's good to see you. I want to acknowledge that last week as we spoke on prayer, that many of you took that opportunity to pray for me. Uh, you know, the strangest thing, I'm not 25 anymore. My back sometimes reminds me of that. So praise Jesus. We'll pray that he will be with us now. And Lord, as we turn to your word, indeed give us grace. Help us to uh, know your comfort, your strength, your power that enables us, that motivates us, that equips us to be your servants in this world. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Salvation is by faith alone. Saving faith is never alone. This famous sentence is my whole sermon today. And in fact, if you understand it completely and always apply it correctly, you have my permission to leave uh, because I have nothing else to say. However, if that applies to you, please see me afterwards because I obviously need to learn from you. But this is also something that we struggle with. We struggle because once we become believers, once we are those who trust in the promises of God in Christ, we act like we need to earn our sanctification. We act like we need to earn our becoming more like Jesus. We either think that we need to earn it, or we think that we do nothing and Jesus does it all. And the struggle is not because the Bible is unclear. The struggle isn't even in the fact that any honest, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring person disagrees. The struggle isn't, in fact, with this sentence at all. The struggle is in our heart. Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our hearts are deceitful. We lie to ourselves willingly. And our hearts are desperately sick. Like alcoholism, we find that our sin twists us and we are both victims and victimizers at the exact same time. Which is why Jesus had to say in John 8, If you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. One of the lies that we often tell ourselves, usually because we're too lazy to prove ourselves wrong, one of the lies we tell ourselves is that there are portions in the Bible that are safely avoided. Pastor Benji in the past has mined gold for us in preaching through genealogies. And we will pick up, he will pick up where he left off in Psalm 133 next week and we'll look forward to that and praise Jesus. But today we are going to find gold in a portion of scripture that you may have allowed your eyes to gloss over. Paul's conclusion to his letter in Colossians. You can turn in your own Bible or you can follow on the screens as we read Colossians chapter 4 verses 7 through 18. Paul writes, Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. 
He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you? They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom, if he comes to you, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have both been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Pastor James has repeatedly commented, if you find the Bible boring, you're reading it wrong. And Pastor James, along with 79 of his closest friends, are all baking their brains out at Lopez Bible Camp for their teenager, or not teenagers, excuse me, <laughs> kickback weekend. So be in prayer for them that they all stay hydrated and that they know God better and therefore love him and trust him more. But allow me here to help you and I to read this passage right so that we will find that gold. And in the end, we'll discover evidence that salvation is by faith alone. Saving faith is never alone. Let's begin by looking at some of the descriptions Paul has for his co-laborers, all of whom were saved by grace through faith alone. Verse 7, Paul says, Tychicus is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Now, raise your hand if when people think of you, you want their first thought of you to be that you're a servant. Not many of us. But nevertheless, Paul tells us we should be exactly that. Colossians 3, 23, 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving Christ. Paul has high praise for the one who masters this lesson. And he lifts up as an example the one who realizes that their saving faith is never alone. Verse 9, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you? Now, as I said in an earlier sermon, this idea of beloved brother means that he is one, like many of you right here, 
who have demonstrated through years of willing sacrifice on behalf of those that Jesus puts near you, that you are loving. Because as you grow in Christ, as you become more and more the individual you were meant to be, but have been thwarted because of your sin, as you grow in your love, as your faith expresses itself through willing sacrifice for those who are near you, our hearts are shaped back into what they were meant to be. And you will be both faithful, in other words, your attitudes and actions will conform to God's commands and promises, and you will be beloved. People will love you because they see, they know that they are loved by you. Paul continues, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Now here is a man who has willingly allowed himself to be imprisoned because he wants to tell others the good news. Now, it's my opinion that the book of Hebrews was written by a disciple of Paul. It may have been Aristarchus who did because he notes with approval, the the author of Hebrew notes with approval in 1034, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The point here is that there is no sacrifice. There is no loss that Christ is not more than sufficient to cover. Jesus says, whoever gives up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands, those whose faith joyfully sacrifices, Jesus promises enough enough reward to make it worth it. And that is why Paul is so quick to acknowledge Aristarchus because Aristarchus is one who will be rewarded by Christ. And therefore, Aristarchus deserves special recognition as an example for you and me to follow. We have more examples to follow. Chapter, or verse 10, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, I want to stop here for a moment. This is important. The mark that Paul is talking about here is the mark. This is the mark that when the going got tough for Paul and Barnabas, Mark got going. He bailed on them. And not only did he bail on them, but he caused such a rift between Paul and Barnabas, whose name is Son of Encouragement, He caused such a rift between them because he bailed. And Barnabas and Paul were fighting about it. Your saving faith and mine must demonstrate itself when forgiveness is required. For example, Paul and Barnabas fighting about Mark bailing on them. You are commanded to forgive, to release your so-called right to revenge and give it back to the Lord. But reconciliation is not necessarily guaranteed. Instead, true reconciliation, like what we see evidenced right here, is a confirming 
validation of the good news of Jesus Christ working in you and therefore through you. Reconciliation between friends and neighbors and enemies is the good news in action. And this glorious hope filled, trust, empowering, life-giving good news is solid gold that you and I can grasp onto as we read the Word of God rightly. Paul is using a painful memory from his own past to make a valuable lesson for you and me. Living in Christ makes the most difficult and most important relational skill possible. You can depend on God the Spirit working in you so that you too can grow in your ability to glorify God by making reconciliation possible. Which emphasizes the very next phrase. Verse 11. The men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God have been a comfort to me. Do you realize what this is saying? Jews were willingly, joyfully serving Gentiles. Racial tensions is nothing new. Nor is it new for Christians to demonstrate our new life in Christ, our saving faith by working to reconcile racial tensions. Your tensions and mine and the tensions all around us in our culture are the result of a sinful heart. And sinful hearts can be changed by the power of God the Spirit working through His people and through His Word. This is the good news you and I are called to live. Racists can, by the power of God, become fellow workers in the kingdom of God. You know what? You and I need to take verses 10 and 11 into our hearts so that we can allow this verse to spur us on to the love and good deeds that will enable the other sinful hearts to see that we have been changed. To see that we understand by the power of God that saving faith is never alone. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf, in his prayers. Why? That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Now I want to draw your attention to two things about this verse. The first is that Epaphras is struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Raise your hand if you've ever struggled to pray. Prayer is not easy. Why? Because you have an enemy that doesn't want you to pray. Why? Because you have habits that tend to lead you away from prayer. Why? Because you have a busy life that does not lend itself to prayer. Why? Because many of us have supposed intellectual 
questions or objections to prayer. Now, what do I mean by supposed intellectual questions or objections? Now, I have found that when people come to me with questions about prayer, most often they are simply excuses not to pray. Because prayer is hard, humbling work. Nevertheless, pray you must. Not because you'll be a bad boy or girl if you don't say your prayers. You and I must do the hard, humbling work of prayer because you're a Christian. You and I must do the hard, humbling work of prayer because prayer is an expression of the saving faith that God put in your heart. You and I need to do the hard, humbling work of prayer because you and I need to develop our prayer muscles so that you and I can be the man or woman that God created us to be. Through prayer. But notice here the second thing in this verse the subject of Epaphras' prayers. He is praying so that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Auntie Matilda's sore toe is certainly something you can pray about. But more important than her sore toe is your auntie's sore soul. The part of her that needs the assurances of God's promises, the instructions about His commandments, and the discipline about her own attitudes and actions. And just for emphasis, just to remind you, Paul adds in verse 13, Epaphras has worked hard for you. Because Paul emphasizes it, I'm going to emphasize it. Prayer is hard work. It takes discipline and it takes labor. So pray. Do it. And this sentence here in verse 13 also brings with it clarity. It takes work to live Christianly. As I've said in the past, we mistake two pillars of our faith, salvation by grace through faith and perseverance of the saints as meaning that we don't need to work. Ah, I'm saved. I can coast now. Ask yourself this question. Is my faith merely fire insurance? No. Your faith makes it possible that you can live your life pleasing your Lord. Your faith makes it possible that He is now working in you and through you to change the lives of those who are around you. All our righteous deeds may be as filthy rags when it comes to earning our way to heaven. That is true. But our passage and the rest of God's Word indicates that godly men and women understand that saving faith is never alone. Which brings me to the crowning verse of this passage and the verse that gives birth to the rest of the sermon. Verse 17. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. 
Whenever you see the word see, or if you use an older translation, it'll be behold. Whenever you see a word like that in the Bible, immediately translate it in your head to pay attention. Look, I'm telling you something important. You need to catch this. That's what that word means. And this gets to the actual meaning of what is going on. Archippus, Paul is saying, Archippus, pay attention that whatever else you do, you fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. Two halves to this. One, Archippus, fulfill your ministry. And Archippus, you have received it from the Lord. The ministry, the opportunities to serve others that you have is a gift of God that is lived by faith or trust in God's promises. And this faith, this trust also empowers the gift and is itself a gift from God the Spirit to us. You are saved by grace through faith alone. Period. That is a gift. And your saving faith is never alone. That's the gift working through you, trusting His promises. You've heard me say a thousand times, the essence of Christianity is to trust the promises of God for you in Christ. Trust. Believe. Have confidence in or Faith that God will come through. Well, come through on what? On His promises. How do we know that we have access to God's promises? Because Christ won them for us by His perfect life, by His perfect death, and by His resurrection from the dead. And because now we are in Christ. Time out just for a second. I've had to water ski through Colossians. 14 weeks is not nearly long enough. So in September, at least two sermons on Sunday nights are going to be to pick up some of the pieces that I've missed. And one of them that I've been so embarrassed that I've missed is what Paul means by in Christ. It comes up twice in Colossians in very important passages. Following that, probably beginning of October, we're going to start up in Romans. Remember, we have free child care Sunday nights. You can come, and we would love to have you. But back now to trusting the promises. I've got another question. How would anyone know that they do, in fact, trust the promises of God for them in Christ? Well, pretty easy. If, in fact, you are trusting the promises of God for you in Christ, then you will know, and those who are around you will know, because your attitudes and actions are different from when your attitudes and actions were before you trusted the promises of God in Christ. For example, when you go through a situation, say you need to forgive somebody or you need to have courage in the face of a difficulty at work or in your marriage or perhaps it's a significant health issue. 
when you go through a situation like this, you will trust God's promises when you are in God's word enough so that you know what he promises and you know what he doesn't promise. And then you begin by the power of the Spirit living in you and through you to live your life like he will come through for you. Do you have need of courage in the face of your anxieties? 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Do you have need to overcome your hopelessness in the face of all that is around us? Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in former times was written for our instruction that through endurance, through the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, Scriptures, excuse me, you may have hope. That strength of soul that we have been emphasizing that enables you to get through the difficult days, not just surviving, but thriving because you are in Christ. And when you begin to look at Scripture like this, when you begin to see the promises of God for you in Christ and what they mean and how they can apply in your life, you will see that these two phrases are very closely related. Salvation is by faith alone and saving faith is never alone. And trust the promises of God for you in Christ. You and I must trust the promises of God's promise for salvation. Then, you will find, if you are going to live as a man or woman in Christ, if you are going to grow in your relationship with Christ, you are going to have to continue to trust His promises for you in Christ. Exactly what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, just as you receive Christ Jesus our Lord as Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught and abounding with thanksgiving. In this understanding of living by His promises, by actively trusting in His promises, by realizing that your saving faith must work itself out so everybody can see is reflected in this verse. Say to Archippus, pay attention, take effort, make sure that people see that you are fulfilling your ministry that was given to you as a gift by the king of the universe. I take verse 17 as shorthand for exactly what I've been saying. Because it's shorthand, this is just a last-minute reminder. There's only one more verse after this. This is a last-minute reminder so that you and I will, as we put Colossians down, be able to trust God's promises and living our life in Christ just as you began it. By faith, by grace, through faith. Now, my big idea that I've stole from the reformers and thousands of other people, the big idea is reflected in this verse. I, if, if this was the only verse, then I would say, ah, Greg, you might be pushing it here. 
But of the many verses we could have turned to, I want to turn to one that Paul gives us in 2 Timothy 1, 8-11. Paul says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Who saved us? And called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and was brought to life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher." What do we see in these short verses? First of all, we see a very clear, straightforward declaration that we are saved by grace through faith. Paul says, God saved us, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. Now, to keep things simple, I am using saved in this passage as synonymous with justification, with declared, being declared righteous. Because I think that's how Paul is using it in these two passages. But I want you to note also that Paul makes it clear that we are saved by grace through faith for his purpose. Now the purpose of God is always to bring him glory. God says this in many places. One of my favorites, Isaiah 43, 25, where he says, I, even I, am the one who blots out your transgressions For my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. And the Bible is equally clear. It remains true that the Christian works also brings him glory. Matthew 5.16, in the same way, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And this idea of our works being a part of God's purpose is further emphasized by the context of this very passage. God calls us to a holy calling. It sounds like Paul wants to emphasize that our salvation is for the purpose of us living holy lives, which, of course, brings glory to God. Furthermore, Paul says, do not be ashamed. And he says, share in my suffering. And both of these attitudes we must do, we must sometimes fight for, sometimes labor to have. We must do these to bring him glory. But the crowning jewel in this regard is how he ends his statement. He says, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. My friends, Paul has a job to do. God called him to be a preacher, apostle, and a teacher. His faith, his saving faith, is never alone. I have a job to do as a man in Christ. So do you. Paul says very clearly, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation is by faith alone. Saving faith 
is never alone. I want to address a common objection that, that comes to mind when Christians hear sermons like this. All this saving faith is never alone stuff sounds like legalism, right? You've heard things like that before, maybe from your own mind. Number one, as I said a few weeks ago, the whole that's legalism stuff is a frequent excuse for those who don't like having God the Spirit convict their own laziness. Oops. Did I say that out loud? But two, legalism is also something very specific in God's Word. It means one of two things. Either we make something other than trusting God's promises necessary for salvation, most here, don't struggle with that. Or two, legalism means we base our evaluation of ourselves or our devaluation of somebody else based upon something that is external and that the Bible does not require. However, when we are convicted because we notice something we are missing that the Bible does in fact require, like exercising to pray, like actively, willingly sacrificing for those near you, like making time to feast on God's Word, when we hear sermons like this, it's far easier to blame legalism than to let the light shine on our own hearts. But lastly, you and I can address our sinful heart with a simple question. Shouldn't we want to do our best for Jesus? Shouldn't we want to live our lives pleasing to him? C.S. Lewis addresses his concern in his essay that every believer should take time to master what's called the weight of glory. And he tells us that there is a lawful pleasure. It's a good thing to enjoy. There is a lawful pleasure of praise from those whom it was my duty to please. We should seek to please our spouse. It should please us. We should take pleasure when we are pleasing our spouse. We should seek to please our neighbor. We should take pleasure when we are pleasing our neighbor. We should seek to please our coworkers and boss. We should take pleasure when we are pleasing those we work with. We should seek to please our Lord and Master and President of Presidents. We should take pleasure when we please Jesus. Now this is a razor's edge idea that we need to dance upon. We must not fall to the debtor's ethic. The idea that God has done so much for you, you owe God. No. My beloved, that idea is blasphemy. You can do nothing to pay God back for your salvation and you should not spit in his face by trying to do so. Instead, 
going to God's Word, learning, then trusting His promises, and depending upon Him to show you how you can trust these promises. That is what will please Him. And that is what will please you as you see Him working in you and through you to put away those sins, to put away those attitudes and actions that thwart you from becoming the man or woman of God that He created you to be. By depending upon His grace to empower you to accomplish kingdom purposes, by faith you will be strengthened so that you will not allow your eyes to gloss over boring passages. Because if the Bible is boring, you're reading it wrong. Instead, dig in to see what you can find that will cause you to think God's thoughts after Him. You will be rewarded. Salvation is by faith alone. And saving faith is never alone. Oh Lord, indeed, these issues are difficult, not because you are unclear, but because my heart continues to be sinful. And I want either to depend upon myself, or I want to just throw up my hands and give up. Help us, Jesus, to grow in our dependence on you so that we will see you working in us and through us for our joy and for your glory and the growth of your kingdom.